Welcome to How to Enjoy Experimental Film. The music you've just heard was composed by one of the most distinguished composers of tonal music in the UK in the latter half of the 20th century, Geoffrey Bush. Geoffrey composed in nearly every genre, including chamber and solo works, choral pieces, opera, light music, which was popular in the post-war years on UK radio and in concerts, and in the case of what you've just heard, film music. This music was actually the final work that Geoffrey Bush composed, and it was written for a film by the composer's own son, Paul. Paul Bush is long established as one of the leading British experimental animators, using direct animation onto celluloid, stop motion, and even computer animation. His direct animation works, including the films His Comedy and The Albatross, for which the early music was written, easily rank among the most beautiful ever made by a British artist, applying the technique of 18th and 19th century woodcutting onto celluloid film. Many of his stop-motion works are described by the filmmaker as pixelated films, which he expands upon in this video clip. Film's a wonderful medium. You can film one frame one day in one place and put it next to a frame filmed a year later on the other side of the world. Pixelation is the name given to stop-frame animation of objects or people. It's a magical technique which makes real objects come alive and takes the viewer into the world of childhood and dreams. Pixelation is a word older than cinema and it's derived from the word pixie, which is a small mischievous fairy. The word means bewitched, confused, enchanted, or insane. I want to make strong stories, but I want to show to the audience every single frame in the film. Film is a cut and drink trick which fools the eye. I want to share with the audience this trick. I want to reveal a magic box in which this deception takes place. How did you get drawn into filmmaking? Well, I was at um, Goldsmiths College studying art, and um, I, I, I probably felt it, it's almost kind of political in a way. I mean, I was drawn to film. I, I have to say, earlier than that, I loved film. I mean, I remember when I perhaps I should go back to when I was like um, fifteen, and I went to a kind of private school I mean it was kind of liberal direct grant school actually it was like a scholarship school in yeah. those days but um I'm sure it's gone very private since um it was um they showed us um the week after we did our o-levels they had they wanted to keep us in school but there was no classes so they did a week of kind of performances and I think the Samuelsons went to the school and they got some films to show and amongst them was Lawrence of Arabia for instance but two films really changed me you know fundamentally and that was um, Ken Loach's Family Life and Peter Watkins The War Game 
you know, and I was like 15, they were profoundly shocking movies at that time. And I think I've, I watched Family Life again more. I've watched them both more recently. And although the war game is very dated now in various ways, um, Family Life still immensely strong. I think it's a brilliant movie. But for a 15-year-old, you know, I just couldn't understand. These didn't seem to be actors. They seemed to be, you know, as indeed, um, you know, one or two of them weren't. They were, they were not actors. It was a mixture of professional and non-professional cast. But I just, you know, I was, I, they profoundly affected me. And then when I was at, um, when I was, um, went to Goldsmiths to study art, I did start looking at um, two strands of filmmaking. One was the Nouvelle Vague, and I started, was introduced to Goddard's movie. I don't think I was in, whether I was introduced at school, I don't know, but I remember going to see them at the Everyman Cinema. And, um, and also, and I was introduced to these at school and that at art school, and that was the um, American avant-garde films of Brackage and, um, you know, uh, Jacobs, um, Sharitz, all these people, uh, Robert Breer. And so um, I, but for the, because of seeing those films, I did suddenly realize it was possible for someone with no connection at all to the film industry to make films. And I did a bit of filming at college, but Goldsmiths, but um, I, the minute I left, I knew I wanted to make films. I joined the London Filmmakers Co-op as a way of finding out more about it. But I, one of the kind of important things for me was I was rather disillusioned by the art world which is not to say that I don't, I'm not interested in art or, or don't really respect and admire and, and love a lot of artists' work, contemporary artists' work and my contemporaries. But I was very, I really didn't like two things. One is that you had to really sell your work to corporate or extremely rich people. And that's the way you'd have to earn a living as an artist. So it would be difficult to earn a living or perhaps being patronised by museums, but it's very difficult to learn a living without really doing work for a very elite group. And um, secondly, I, I actually think um, I had a kind of like um, reaction to objects and I really wanted to make things that were kind of uh, uh, both reproducible endlessly reproducible so it would have a large audience and you get money by a lot of people seeing it which might seem odd in relation to experimental film but also um that it was immaterial you know that in sense like print it's it's a kind of the piece in a sense is is digital you know or you know because of because it's endlessly reproducible not digital by in the modern terms, but it's it's it, there's no um, solid substance in a. I mean, there is a bit in a film, a negative, but um, really, it's something that can be endlessly reproduced and wasn't didn't take up space. And they they all have aspects of they have some form of animation to them, don't they? But with quite a distinct uh, approach, whether it's stop motion or scratch on film. Is it scratch on film first? Was that where you started? Well, I was making films in the um, in the eighties that were not single frame at all. 
but you know my work was clearly in opposition to the mainstream experimental work of the 80s and I probably suffered because of it um, I was out of I was really out of kilt out of step with the work of <clears throat> that was the dominant work funded by the Arts Council and at the same time I was really out of step with postmodernism and and um, that kind of work so I think my work fell through a gap in the in the 80s but I was making films there I had work on Channel 4 and BBC but I found it very very difficult to get funding almost impossible my work so barely touched the structural materialist um, work that is it you know wasn't even in opposition to it I mean it just wasn't work I was interested in although I, I saw a lot I, I went I saw a lot of those films I was you know I was more interested in other work like like Chris Wellsby's work for instance and although although their work was very separate I mean thanks to things like Patrick Keel I wasn't the only one who was doing work that kind of completely ignored the structural materialist uh, practice um, so there were other kind of fellow travellers doing our own things but it just it just really wasn't easy and the start of Channel 4 helped me of course but it, not straight away but it was a help because um, television could not show structural materialist films they just don't come across you know it's the materialist film so if you want to see these films you have to see them in a cinema and on film yeah and on film so I mean it's it's no point kind of um it just wasn't geared towards television and television, you know, particularly the 11th hour slot um, curated by Alan Fountain and Rod Stoneman. They were looking out for um, work from the more left field work that was that was not abstract. Okay. Didn't, you know, therefore require um, the, you know, the, the work that was kind of transferable, let's say, uh, that it could be seen in cinema or TV or video or didn't matter you know to me it doesn't matter what my work's shown on although naturally you know like probably most filmmakers I do like the cinema and I do like my films shown there. To what extent therefore do you consider yourself experimental? Uh, I think my experimental practice you know my my experimental practice my boy my filmmaking practice is experimental it obviously varies in the sense that sometimes I've made really big leaps into the dark and um, I'm doing one now by the way but I won't talk about that because I'd rather hush it up <laughs> it's the privilege of, um, of um, working kind of more or less independently to keep quiet about one's things until you you know till you realize it's not a total mistake but yeah I mean I've done that and um but of course, sometimes you work on something that's already been um, tried tried before. I mean, but generally, in fact, yeah, generally, I mean, my, what I've worked on, my, I've just worked on my ideas. So, you know, I've developed, I've developed a technique or an idea further in a series of films, which therefore becomes less experimental in a sense. As mentioned, many of Paul's earlier films were scratch animations. 
A DVD of these films is available variously from the BFI store, Lux, and a few other online outlets. You can also find some of these films on Paul's Vimeo page, embodying the importance that he puts on being approachable to as wide an audience as possible. Well, the the, the first one I did that way, and it really was an enormous step for me. And it and to a point, obviously working directly on films, uh, you know, been been um, there are many practitioners of it. Um, the only difference was that conceptually, I was looking at kind of actually taking wood engravings, illustrations. The first one I did was of um, the Divine Comedy, um, Dante's Divine Comedy, and I just used um, Gustav Doré's illustrations, woodblock illustrations. And the whole point was that I would be doing exactly what the woodblock craftsman did, which was to draw, which was to engrave out round the line of the artist. And that's what I did on film. But there were various kind of little film things that I added. So, so basically that what I would do is I would film, I would f- film the engravings, but very close up. So I was working more or less the size of the engraving itself on film. So I'm scratching on a very small piece of material, but at the same time I'm I'm kind of doing it in a similar size to the original the original drawing. So I'm doing these kind of details out of the engraving, and I had no idea what it would look like. And I remember going. I worked for a year doing tests, and this was after a very unsuccessful period for me as a filmmaker. Um, so I, I did some tests. I liked it also because it used virtually no materials. And although when I got into production, there were some lab, big laboratory expenses, generally it costs almost nothing to do to scratch on film. And I looked at these tests in the cinema because I didn't have 35 mil equipment. Mm. And I just remember thinking I had no idea whether it was good or bad because I'd never seen anything like this before. And um, it's also these films are use the something you can't use now, which is um, color film stocks that are made up of three colors. And so when you scratch through, you get different colors. And now some of these film stocks aren't available anymore. So it'd be very difficult now to do that. Um, And then I applied to the Arts Council for this um, animate award that I was aware of where they were looking for new filmmakers. And that that was the first film that I made where I got a proper budget and I kind of gave up my other work. I just took up, kept one day a week teaching and I made a series of films one after the other. And in the 90s, my life really changed. I mean, I'd been 14 years since leaving Goldsmiths in 1978 and 1992 when I got my first full film production. And in that time, I hadn't, I got some materials only grants, little bits and pieces, a couple of things bought for television, but I hadn't ever had the luxury of being able to give up work and just work on one thing. And the Albatross came really, well, it's, it's a funny thing that you can make films that are reasonably successful and no one's put any money towards them. So no one cares apart from you and your family. But the minute you make something as Arts Council, Channel 4 film, it was successful. And then people start noticing because you're using other people's money. 
And it just went from a kind of really bad cycle into a really good cycle for me. And everyone wanted a scratch film. I did one for ITV of all things. I then did one for the BBC. And that was the Albatross. The many men so beautiful and they all dead did lie. And a thousand thousand slimy things lived on and so did I. The inspiration for Paul's films is quite clearly literary here, whether it is Dante's Divine Comedy or Samuel Taylor Coleridge's Rime of the Ancient Mariner, as in The Albatross. Later, Robert Louis Stevenson appears in Paul's adaptation of Jekyll and Hyde, but it is the visual cues from Gustave Doré that are so remarkable here, the illustrations both for The Divine Comedy and Rime of the Ancient Mariner being brought to life by Paul's use of first live action, which is then traced and scratched onto Black Leader. The images shimmer as if lit by candlelight, creating an atmosphere that is sometimes ominous, even as it inspires wonder at the sheer care and attention to every frame of the films. The music for the film, which Paul's father Geoffrey composed, also takes some cues from the eccentric folk song arrangements of both the Australian composer Percy Granger and the British composer Benjamin Britten. Most of Paul's films also boast excellent sound design by Andy Cowton. Chris Robinson wrote a book about um, independent animators, and he said a very beautiful thing, which I'm going to quote, which he said, watching the albatross is right, right, like reading a book by moonlight. <laughs> and uh, I just thought that's, that's such a nice thing to say. I mean, I couldn't, you know, um, um, I couldn't aim for a higher ambition as a result than that. And that was so experimental, not so much because I knew what I was going to do. I knew I knew I was going to I want I wanted to tell a, a story about the sea. Um, because this technique really looks very beautiful. It, um, it works really well for kind of weather changes of weather and mood and so on. I, I didn't want to alter the text at all. So I, it was a question of finding verses in the poem that told the story. So I wanted to leave out a lot of the kind of complex verses. I just wanted the simple narrative. And I managed to find that, which I was really pleased by, you know, that there I could use all the most important verses. Paul's use of music and sound also links to the sense of immediacy one gets in these works. Paul favours diegesis, that is to say, music as part of a scene, rather than mood music or emotional underscoring. It is music that a character in the film might play or sing, as opposed to music added on afterwards, which the filmmaker finds kitsch. After the scratch film Secret Love, which sets a Percy Granger folk song arrangement with images, Paul moved away from the direct animation style to embrace the stop-motion pixelated style I mentioned at the top of the show. These sometimes employ stop-motion to animate inanimate objects, such as in the films While Darwin Sleeps or Furniture Poetry. At other times, it uses actors, as in the illustration of Dr. Jekyll's evil alter ego in his updating of Stevenson's story. More recently, he combined both actors and changing inanimate objects with his film Ride, in which a rider mounts a motorcycle which metamorphoses beneath him. 
when I was at Goldsmiths and had shot some movies with a Super 8 camera, I'd done this weird little test and this had always kind of haunted me as being really interesting and odd. I simply just animated a chair changing. I'd put a chair there and moved it away. A couple of studio chairs that we had, put it back again, moved it away. And I changed the frame rate through from changing it every frame to every two frames, every three frames. And it remained for 20 years, just something on a piece of Super 8 film. I've now actually restored it and I put some of this stuff on my website. Um, uh, but that, that idea I always thought was rather interesting. And oddly enough, given so many people making films, I never saw anyone else do it. And I just received, you know, just, I just um, become known as a filmmaker. So on the one hand, it seemed very risky to change. You know, I had a young family and I was earning money just for my own um, independent productions, which was an incredibly incredible period, which I value and now realise was immensely lucky. But I wanted to try this technique. So on the one hand, it seemed risky having established, you know, you know, in animation more than anything else, it, it, around in art, people are associated with their techniques. And if they move aside from it, particularly in animation, you know, you're liable to be stepping into, you know, into, well, let's put it this way. When people saw Furniture Poetry, a lot of people who never told me that they liked my films then came up and said, oh, we really liked your films that you did using the other technique. So at least I got a lot of praise in retrospect, but relative only to the fact that they didn't like this one. It, it, this kind of um, stop motion of objects where you're really just, I'm just changing them and playing with frame rate. It's an incredibly simple idea. And it's been much copied commercially, lots and lots of adverts. I've luckily managed to do a few myself, but mainly by other people. But um, it was very difficult to explain to the funders. You know, when I was doing the Albatross, you know, there's, there's, you can compare it. You know, there's scratch film. You can talk about all the people who've done it before, how you're doing it differently, how you're basing it on. You can talk about Coleridge. You can talk about wood engravings. When you just move one object and change it with another similar one, every frame in front of a movie camera, um, it's very difficult to justify it. But to me, it's one of my favourite films because it is a way that you see the world. It doesn't relate to any other art form. And it's a way of showing the world that you could only do because of the film camera, because of this um, strange apparatus that you know, synthesises movement because that's what the film camera does. I'm, I'm very much kind of scornful of the notion that a film is in any way a time-based art because all art's time-based. Um, both, you know, to look at all art, to look at a painting requires time, there's no difference. But what a film, film camera does is it synthesizes movement. And obviously to us, there's a very close connection between movement and time. You know, we really, I think our understanding of time is actually based on movement, on understanding movement. Now I'm stepping into a territory that I really don't understand and it's just hearsay. But I hear that, um, pe um, that people think now that movement's something that's learned at a very early age, maybe in the first few months of babyhood, where there becomes an understanding that when you know, when the breast or the milk um, disappears and reappears, 
for the baby. It's not just magical, but actually it involves movement away and therefore time. So I do think time and movement are very closely locked together, probably in our, um, you know, our, our understanding. And that's why there's a kind of confusion in film, but, you know, film where we're actually dealing with time when we're not, we're, we're dealing with movement, where the manipulators of movement. In both Jekyll and Hyde and the ballet-based film Par des Deux des Deux, the filmmaker has multiple actors performing the same actions and uses stop motion to flicker between them, sometimes as rapidly as a frame at a time. This practice is every bit as enchanting as the Scratch films, but places quite extraordinary demands on the performers. The Jekyll and Hyde, I used um, some friends of mine, you know, from visual theatre and performance. There was a circus skills person. The dance movie, I was very worried and asking for dancers. I mean, they were kind of contemporary. They were, you know, people who, they were ballet trained. Um, Three of them were ballet trained, but they switched to contemporary dance. But even so, you know, I had, in order for them to throw you know, to carry the dancers, the men to carry the dancers in the air. Um, of course, because I was doing it single frame, I had to have a hoist to lift them up. And I was a bit concerned. But lucky one of them that who'd studied in East Germany, she'd always wanted to be a circus performer, but her um, her parents hadn't let her, made her do the ballet. So she was very happy about that. With Ride, which was... Um, yeah, we were just really lucky. I had a young, young actor, you know, maybe one of his first or second films. Um, he just performed for us fantastically, energy-wise, in all ways. Um, great casting, which was not thanks to me, but thanks to um, the Portuguese. I, I worked with a really great Portuguese crew. We also had the, you know, the films I make require special skills in all of them all of us including me sometimes and the funny thing is you never use those skills again so I always have to apologize you know to actors and my team who I've asked them to do something that they you know work really hard for you know for weeks on something on a skill that they will never use again Mm. it's tough you seem to um let the audience in on the game a bit that you yeah material that's going to be pixelated so to speak um and uh so is that important that you you reveal you just let them in a little bit to see how the trick is achieved or yeah i mean i think for one thing um i mean there's a number of things i mean you know people i've spoken to and co-producers sometimes you know they don't like that i do that that i set something up and i break it Um, So when I was working with Ride and I I completely get his point of view, um, the co-producer who's also a filmmaker, my co-producer in Portugal, who's also a very famous and independent filmmaker, he hates the bit where um, I stop the stop motion and the rider of the motorbike puts on the helmet and gloves. I mean, it's actually, I actually, it's not fully live action. Um, it's not running it's I, I actually have to um, take out frames in order for it to cut together but I mean he hates it and wishes I'd done it stop motion but when I showed it the first time I showed it to an audience which oddly enough was in Mexico um, I, I was just um, visiting and asked I just by chance asked to show the film 
and I stood talk to a group of students, not film students, and I, I showed them that. Everyone laughs the minute the guy puts on his helmet and combs his hair. And um, I just think it's something that animators hate to have bits of non-animation in their films. I mean, sometimes it's a kind of a rule of the game. So I like playing with this um, perception. So you start, you're looking at single still frames, you know, and then it becomes animated. And I love the tug. There's a kind of attention and it's like um, your um, perceptions being told. Um, there's you're looking at single frames, still frames, still frames. And then suddenly you, you can't hold on to that anymore and it's motion. And then when it slows down, you still hang on to the sense of motion to the last possible moment until you can't, your brain can't tell you this is movement anymore. And then you see still frames. So there's quite a kind of visceral um, experience watching these films. And I think it's why that they you know, probably five minutes, which is the kind of length I work on almost always now, five, six minutes is, um, you know, you, it's probably enough work you want to put someone, someone's brain to. Within, within these films, there's like a concept um, that often is only kind of one minute in length. I mean, when I went made furniture poetry, essentially it's like a one minute idea or Jekyll and Hyde where I changed actors every frame. You know, you could show an audience, I could do a test, show an audience, this is my idea. You know, this is what I'm playing around with. You could do it in one minute, but then it's not a film. Mm. And I think when you're, especially when you're trying new things, you need to take the audience on a path to that point. So within these kind of one minute ideas, sometimes, you know, you need to lead people. Um, you need, I mean, I think, I hope, Although there's some repetition, definitely, in what I've done in terms of techniques with the stop motion of objects and people, um, I hope each one and think each one takes the audience on a different journey so that they are, you know, they're, they're very different films. They have a very different feel to them. In 2013, Paul released his only feature film to date, Babeldom. It is an intriguing faux documentary set in a perhaps not too distant future, in which two lovers try to communicate with one another whilst living separately in a city so massive that light cannot escape its gravitational pull. It is a bleak and occasionally unsettling work, which, unusually in Paul's output, has not been as popular with audiences as some of his shorter-form pieces, despite considerable critical acclaim. It is, however, also available on DVD and more than worth your time if you're in the mood to explore a strange new cinematic world. The main question, which comes right at the end and I ask everybody, is the title of the show, How to Enjoy Experimental Film. I, I say it in the same tongue-in-cheek way that you use that title but my credibility in experimental filmmakers reduced by the fact that people do like watching my films <laughs> <laughs> and I know I know that's a problem I know it's not entirely true and I know that's obviously a problem with Babeldom that there's not enough pleasure for the audience but I mean uh, you know with, with the short films you know I managed to you know achieve a really really 
big audience, not just in festivals, but in cinema distribution, you know, particularly in the countries that, that will show, still show short films like France, even in the UK, and also um, television. I mean, they have been multi-platform. It's an issue about why people want to, you know, what people want to watch, and particularly that's changed. And also particularly in terms of visual, watching, watching movies visually. And it's definitely, you know, I, I mean, the, the experimental, um, well, I don't know. It's, I mean, I, I, I went to, um, I went to early, early um, computer animation program at the Tate Modern. And it's like 300 people sitting there on the stone steps watching it on the stone slope of the turbine hall. And it's just like, oh my God, you know, we're, this is fantastic. Um, you know, watching kind of watching a line move very slowly <laughs> across a white screen. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult for, for, an, for I, I, I mean, it, an audience needs to be, to want to be challenged, to be in the mood to want to be challenged. And um, a lot of the time they don't. <laughs> and I understand that. If you've enjoyed listening, don't forget to subscribe. We'll be back with more very soon. My thanks to Paul Bush for taking the time to speak to me, as well as allowing the use of clips from his films. Thanks also to Gabriel Ness, who composed the music for this show. Finally, of course, thank you to you for listening, and join us next time. Here's some of Geoffrey Bush's music for The Albatross to play us out. Oh